Welcome to Protest and Survive number four. I'm your host, Reed Dunley. In this podcast, we interview people who do both creative and activist work. If you feel so inclined to send any financial support our way, you can do so at anchor.fm slash protest dash and dash survive. Today's guest is Raphael Shimanov. I became aware of Raphael's work when he put up his own artwork, guerrilla style, in the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York. It was in protest to the Whitney's vice chair of their board of directors, Warren Canders. Canders owned Safari Land, a company that was manufacturing tear gas used by Trump at the border. Hyperallergic reported that canisters of tear gas bearing Safari Land's name were found where U.S. Customs and Border Protection had fired tear gas at Central American migrants near Tijuana in November 2018. The migrants, who included children, were seeking asylum in the U.S. Other activists have continued to organize against Canders. 50 of the 75 artists at the Whitney's annual biennial show signed a letter supporting his ouster from the board, and the radical collective Decolonize This Place staged protest under the umbrella Nine Weeks of Art in Action. The Whitney staff has protested for his removal as well. Raphael says that he is planning a follow-up action to his DIY art installations. You've probably already seen some of his other work. He live-streamed the JFK Muslim ban protest for the Working Families Party, which received 16 million views on Facebook alone. Here in New York, JFK Terminal 4, go to Terminal 4 parking and you can come out here and join us. And remember when CNN reporter Jim Acosta and a White House intern clashed over his microphone when Trump tried to cut off Acosta? Miles away though, they're hundreds and hundreds of miles away. That's not an invasion. Honestly, that's enough. The other folks that's enough. Pardon me, ma'am. Excuse me, that's enough. Mr. President, I had one other question, if I may ask on on the The White House shared a doctored InfoWars video of the incident, and there was then a video going around Twitter that used a red overlay to compare the doctored and undoctored videos. Raphael made that video. In this interview, we discuss all of that activist work, as well as coming to America from Uzbekistan, growing up in an immigrant family in Queens, and how using art in protest taps into different parts of people's brains. So without further ado, here is Raphael Shimanov on Protest and Survive. Raphael, tell me about yourself. Hey, I'm Raphael Shimanov. <laughs> And I'm, you know, just uh, someone from Queens, Queens, New York. Flushing, represent. Flushing, yeah, that's right. Grizzly, home of the Grizzly Bronsons. And um, is that the, is that a mascot of? <laughs> that's a nickname something? for Action Bronson. Mm. Grizzly Flushing, Flushing Grizzly. Mm. He has a bunch of them, but yeah, that's someone honking, supporting what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I love yeah. that. Um, Seeing from The Simpsons when the teachers are having the picket line and says honk if you love cookies. <laughs> in every protest, if you realize when people honk in support, everyone goes crazy. Everyone. No it's insane. What. It's like if someone walked by and was just like, yes, no one would barely even notice. But if you have a car and you support the protest, suddenly it's, it's havoc. You know? Yeah. <laughs> People, it'll, it'll be like the most riveting speaker you've ever yes. heard, and people will turn yes. to, to yell. Yeah, I think I know what it is. Like, <laughs> it's so powerful that I do it. Like, if I'm in a car and I know I'm passing a protest, I'm going to do it. 
and just I don't even know Always. what it is. Yeah, you know? it <laughs> I'm gonna support it. But I, I think it's sort of like that scene. I think I don't know if it's Lord of the Rings or it's like in every action movie where y- there's this war and you're losing, and suddenly the the Ents come out of the forest and you have these new allies, or the ghosts come out of nowhere. And you have these new allies and it tips the scale. Somehow maybe the cars are like another species that just joined your, <laughs> your battle. <laughs> well, it's also it's an amazing feeling as the driver of the car to all of a sudden you have a huge crowd cheering for you. <laughs> again, just by hitting your horn. Yeah. And like putting your thumbs up out the window or something. That's right. <laughs> JFK protest. It was huge. Once the taxi drivers just honk their horns, it became like it just electric. Yeah, it was beautiful. You have some sounds there. You know, we don't have an intro, and usually the intro sets the the energy. Yeah. I don't know if you wanted to like just press a random I intro. Wish, I wish they had a. Um... What was that? <laughs> Did I? I don't think I actually pressed the button. That just, it just hurts you saying that we needed a sound. Yeah. Yeah. We're here with. And here we are in the Anchor Studios, <laughs> West 25th Street. Boop, boop. Honk, 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 honk. The cars have joined the battle. Yeah. We're ready now. That's going to be too. Too much fun. <laughs> you were born in Uzbekistan? Yeah. yeah. Um, I was born in Uzbekistan. My mom is from Tajikistan. Uh, and uh, it was during the Soviet occupation of that, of those countries. And we had fled. I was at two years old. So I don't really have memory other than some photos. But uh, my parents fled as refugees through Hyas and through this route through Europe and Italy and settled in Italy, fell in love with Italy for a while, and then made a choice. They chose New York. What does your family think about your activism work? Huh. <laughs> it's tough. You know, they, the culture, including my own sensitivities when I was young, was always not to rock the boat and to kind of feel like these perennial guests wherever you are, um, even in Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, there was the remnants of uh, Stalin kind of population transfer where white Russian people from like Moscow and the north would be sent to Samarkand and to Shambhe and throughout the countries in, in the Central Asia. And they would be given administrative jobs, journalism jobs, all of that stuff. So there was always this sense of being a guest where you are even where we were for thousands of years. Even in a way where our name, Buharian, is not something we decided. We weren't called Buharian as a community. Uh, it was a European traveler, I think, who ended up finding some of us in a city called Bukhara, which we don't even exist in as much as in other cities, and then decided that's our name, and now it's my name, and I'm using it right now today. Yeah, So uh, there is a lot of a feeling of not not rocking the boat and I've always dismissed that it's actually I've been thinking about this a lot lately I've always dismissed that like no this is America the constitution the bill of rights we are citizens there's nothing that can change that 
And now I actually sometimes question it. I question it because even now there's a task force that Trump was trying to create even for naturalized citizens to rummage through their filings and paperwork so they could find a way to even deport actual citizens. And also just like the general feeling from from as when I comment on something on like Twitter or something and the hate, the style of hate messages I'll get is always go. Why don't you go to Uzbekistan? versus I disagree with you on this because Thomas Paine. And then I say, I disagree with you. This is because of Andrew Jackson or, you know, uh, which other people have those conversations. Tell me about the Whitney. Whitney. I love the Whitney. It's a beautiful museum. When did you first go to the Whitney? <laughs> I am a Whitney. I'm an official Whitney exhibitor. Uh, never invited. <laughs> uh, so Whitney was. Yeah. So official is when you're on the wall. Yeah, for sure. I, I would say once you have an exhibit on the wall and there's cus- like people, viewers looking at it and soaking it in, you're official Whitney. Nothing, not much has changed since, <laughs> but but uh, there was a pretty shocking news, and this was the revelation that their co-chair is the owner of the manufacturer of tear gas and other chemical explosives that um, Trump uses on the border. But in additionally, in Standing Rock. Ferguson. West Bank. Like, you name it. Like, wherever something is happening where you're suppressing people, that manufacturer is there providing chemicals of which even on their own website warn can cause birth defects and and other terrible things cancer and just use as a non-lethal quote uh alternative and uh he owns it he bought it and a lot of people got upset at that and there was this iconic picture when that news came out of the mother and children in tijuana who were escaping some of that gas. And there was a lot of public outcry at how they saw these videos and photos of the gas being used on unarmed families just trying to actually legally apply for asylum. So I made a version of the photos, painted over them to make it look like a painting, did two of them just in case they found one, (laughs) and uh, made sure, you know, we we wrapped them in uh, gift wrap so they don't, so they can't open it. And we scoped out the place before and we found the place with like no cameras. Gift wrap like you made it look like a present. Like it's a present I'm giving were... my mom or something. Yeah. yeah, with like a gift bag and everything. And like, how dare you want me to open this? Yeah. <laughs> but um, So for one, you're going through security. Yeah, so for one, you're going through security and, you know. Uh, and then I uh, had a second one elsewhere in case that, you know, whatever. And scoped out the place before, um, heard about, like, I was telling people I'm about to do this, and then heard about another thing happening, parallel. And this was from inside the, the museum where the staff, over 100 of them, decided to call out, call him out, and demand he resign. So I figured, oh, yeah, this is on, and I'm going to help promote what they're saying. Uh, and we found a spot without security. 
with very little security, surprisingly, and without cameras. And it was just beautiful. And we just put it up on the wall, including the description. And, and we credited um, the co-chair as the, as the creator of it, because he is. And um, people came and we just hung out for, I don't know, more than 30 minutes and talked to a bunch of patrons and described things. And they took pictures in front of it and just like treated it like any other exhibit. And I guess like maybe they knew we were there and waited for us to leave to avoid even more bad coverage because uh, it would be kind of hypocritical for them because uh, they just had downstairs like a exhibit about art and protest and that sort of thing. So it would be kind of, <laughs> it would have made things better if they arrested us. And we were, we were ready to be arrested. We hung out 30 minutes and we just walked out and left them up. Yeah. 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 I guess it would have, the, the <laughs> optics of dragging you guys out of there. Yeah. Handcuffs would have. They would have. Yeah. Yeah. They're starting to, you know, people are starting to learn, like, I guess the power of that imagery, or maybe they didn't see it and, you know, and just didn't notice and took it off eventually. Who knows? I don't know. But it was like uh, someone called it the reverse Thomas Crown affair where you sneak in a painting <laughs> to yeah. a museum, yeah. And why, um, I don't know, of all, the, of all the types of actions you could have taken, why, why did you land on that one? I'm trying to think of what I thought then. Like right now I could justify it in so many different ways. But I guess what I thought then it was just anger that someone's not doing something. Right now in that moment, no mainstream press was reporting on, on this link, which was... To me, just not surprising, but also not, right? Uh, but it angered me. Um, and I thought something, an action like that would get more press in a, in a very easy, simple, straightforward way. And it would do it in a, in a cultural way, which is my favorite mode of, of this. Like, there's so many types of protests you can do, but when you're using, when you're claiming an institution that's your own, and you're reminding folks that these are, these belong to us. Um, I think that's really powerful. Yeah, tell me more about that. Why do you think that these these cultural ways of doing it have have a bigger effect, or um, or a more personal effect, even, or something? Yeah, I, I think because I guess it's like music, where you know, like when I play something for my daughter, and I tell her like, "Don't you feel this?" and she's just like, "It's okay." And what I'm feeling is nostalgia for when I first heard that song and all of the connections to that and all my friends and those feelings and dramas associated with that song. And we have those same connections to institutions. Like we have that with museums and cereal boxes or, you know, whatever kind of toy, colors, anything. Um, and if you can tap into that... Uh, I feel like if you, you're reminding people that ownership is actually just some words on a paper and that that feeling that we have, that those connections we have, we all kind of co collectively own it. And once in a while popping up and reminding each other of that seems pretty powerful to me. This guy still uh, yeah. still owns this company. Warren, still on the board, yeah. Warren Kander. Yeah, yeah, he has a pretty interesting name for his company too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he does. Uh, it's a, he has a few names. One of them is Safari Land, as in, you know, 
think of that old British guy on top of a, a Land Rover shooting at elephants and like animals. That's a safari. <laughs> and this is safari land, apparently. And he sells a lot of equipment to police, um, including those uh, chemical explosives. Yeah. yeah. And he responded to at least the, the letter. Yes. He said that he is just as important an institution to the good of the world as the museum. That, that providing these, these weapons, he didn't use weapons, but he, he liked to highlight the defensive things on his, on his sales list, which is like the filter you'll, smoke, you'll breathe through while you're, while you're attacking someone or like a shield, something like that, or a vest or whatever. And um, he, he'll focus on those and then he'll say he's providing a service much like the Museum of Art and just like just deny any kind of responsibility and also say that and use the NRA, NRA quote of like, well, he doesn't decide on how these things are used. And we all know that's that's not actually true. Um, we know that when there was enough public outcry against the death penalty, that companies that provided states with the chemical started writing into their contract that you can't use it for the death penalty. And these states were starved of their ability to kill people. And it worked. And no one is knocking on the doors of these manufacturers anymore. So we know that's not true. The one thing to say about these kind of socialites and people that he, he, he mingles with is that they want to continue doing evil shit without being called on it. And the moment that it's really clear and, and, and not so opaque about what they're doing, they want none of you. And Warren should be that toxic to them, just like a Donald Trump would be right now, where they probably agree with the tax cuts and, the, and certain wars and things like that, but they don't want their name on that. Right now, increasingly, they're going to have their name on these, tier, on these weapons. Yeah, so what would you say is like, I don't know, your your ultimate goal for these actions and also do you think you'll be successful in it? So, yeah, I guess this comes up with like the different analysis with me and let's say uh, uh, the other groups. Um, the other groups are looking at this through this wide lens. And to be honest, a lot of our museums and a lot of our institutions are, you know, in Coke money and in a lot of like things that are even worse than tear gas. Um, and they want to see this as this, you know, um, tipping point against all of that. And uh, like, like they're viewing this as this cultural liberation. And I support that. For me, my personal goal in particular is to develop enough support for those workers inside there that if there was no one looking anymore, they would all be fired tomorrow. And as long as people are looking at them and knowing why they're under threat, the more protection they have. So my goal is to see him not only resign, but to see the staff protected and to watch them. Like their leadership is amazing. They're the ones who are, A, the ones who are directly impacted by the border policies. Their families, their friends, maybe themselves. And two, risking their jobs, their livelihood every day to advocate for it to an audience that's being silent right now. And in the art world, 
in in the mainstream news world uh there's right now there's silence on it so it sounds like you kind of have your hands in a lot of different places when it comes to just being involved has it always been like that have you always been really active i guess i don't know i feel like i'm just always i like to be where i'm like where i where there's no one else doing something and i feel like there's use so even and it it kind of takes the pressure off because I don't like being counted on to do like an A plus kind of thing. It's too much pressure. And so in fact, jumping into something that no one else is doing and not being afraid of doing like a C or a B job is kind of like heaven for me. So yeah. so I'm always like in fact it started as a child like even I we would be racing with someone on a bike and the moment I started pre- approaching first place just that immediate pressure of that to maintain that was just overwhelming. I no longer enjoyed what I was doing. And then I would just like fold back a little bit just to get second place. And I was good, you know. And and somehow um, I found work where there's a lot of gaps to fill. And you can use your creative energy in, in many different ways. Um, and it's actually really useful and powerful even if you... You know, you're learning or um, you're kind of, you know, not doing like a spectacular kind of production with it. That's how much it, the movement needs all of us. Yeah. Tell me about those uh, JFK protests. You were pretty, you were oh, pretty up in that. Yeah, it was... It was something else. Um, usually these things uh, prior to that had all the same faces and same people that every other protest has. And this one was immediately, like, people started noticing, oh, wow, I've never seen certain archetypes show up. And then that one person ended up representing 50 others like them coming and another person, like, representing some other culture, subculture, like, look, whatever, seen showed up and then you knew immediately that was an indicator that hundreds of the, of them are going to come on their way. It was it was crazy. Yeah. Uh my phone was dying. I was live streaming and had to find like a battery while I was live streaming um holding the phone and it's just becoming what ended up being millions of people like watching through my phone. This is Raphael from Working Families Party. I'm here at JFK Terminal 4. You can join us. It's gonna, we're going to be here a while. Um, there are at least 20 detainees, visa holders. It was, it was incredible. And a point where even someone texted me and would flash on the screen, you're on, you're on Greek television. It's like they channeled you through. <laughs> and then I forgot all about that and just started cursing about something. And... My friends just immediately, uh, you're not on Greek television anymore. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, you know, I wasn't used to that. Yeah. In my last <clears throat> job, I did a lot of like Facebook Live and live streaming stuff. And I feel like I had a I had a work phone and that was just so I always had battery basically so, so I could do that because like. So smart. I did this thing where hard. I had the battery in the pocket with a long cord because it was freezing. Yeah. The long cord going through my sleeves and the cord coming out of my sleeve. And being like someone who's kind of brown from Central Asia with wires popping out of everywhere in an airport is not a really good look. <laughs> but, you know, somehow it was okay for that moment. It worked. Yeah. 
Yeah. When and how did you end up at JFK in the first place? I was uh, headed to work because I'm a fool and work on weekends. And driving on the highway, someone texted me just assuming that I was going to be there because it's Queens, because it's immigrants. And they're like, where are you? I don't see you here. And I'm just like, well, I'm supposed to be there. And they're like, yes, you have to come now. And it was still like a pretty small group. And I just made a, you know, got off right on the exit or U-turn, I don't even remember. And just made it my way in and just watched that thing explode. What time did you get there? Uh, I think it was morning. I don't, I don't remember what time, but yeah, it was pretty early. Yeah. I didn't get there until seven mm-hmm. o'clock or something yeah. and there were a lot of people there yeah. um by then they were like closing off the <clears throat> trains and blocking more people from coming yeah and then i think at some point in time cuomo stepped in and said you know you need to let people take the air train you can't yeah. like uh, after, you can't he, after he, he, he did discriminate yeah <laughs> he's a genius at that political posturing where uh we had a banner, and this is like one midpoint in the in my stream was these kids, these boys just had a banner that said we will protect each other, and they went to the parking lot where we're all standing on anyway, and the fact that they're just hanging a banner compared to the other people leaning the same way caused these like militarized state police to come draw their machine guns and tell them to remove this banner. And when I asked them, it's, and it's on video as well, when I asked the trooper why, why he's doing this, it's just a banner, he says, why don't you ask Cuomo? I'm talking about responding to a banner with, like, assault rifles. That's kind of weird. Yeah, you should, right? The trooper said, we should talk to Governor Cuomo about that. And he's absolutely right. You know, so at the same time, Cuomo behind the scenes, suppressing as much of this as possible. And then like a political genius taking credit for protecting it. Yeah. I mean, he's made a solid career out of <laughs> taking credit for progressive causes after yeah. they've already happened. It's pretty, it's kind of, it's kind of smart. Textbook. Yeah. Backing it up a little bit. Tell me about more about, you know, your organizing and political background and how come someone is texting you in the first place where are you um <laughs> how come you're not at the protest well I th- that back then i was working at this amazing third party called the working families party and particularly in new york they're on the ballot and they run in a way of course that doesn't spoil elections that primaries dems really hard in the beginning but then against a republican of course goes with democrats and through that kind of work i because allyship was so heavy with that work coalitions were so heavy I had developed deep friendships with people in any movement you can think of. And when the the people texting me were now from the immigration movement, um, there was Muslim bans, so it was also Muslim allies, friends. And we all knew about it, that it was happening in Queens. We just thought it's going to be just another protest. And other people's guts read it differently and told me to make that turn. (laughs) You know, there's... Obviously, a handful of things you could probably point to, but what do you think are some of the things that change this from being just a regular protest to this kind of big national um, mm. action? Well, I guess I could say from from a Queen's perspective, it's the most diverse place in the world. And for the Muslim ban to show up there first and the enforcement to show up there first was actually a challenge to us. Like, I, I don't think it's an accident that 
white supremacists, when they expand, they go to liberal areas, they go to Austin, they'll go to Brooklyn, and they're going to start there. I don't think it's a mistake that Jeff Bezos chooses the most unionized city to start a new office in. I don't think it was a mistake that uh, Trump picked the most diverse place to start Muslim ban in. It's almost as if, if I can show you that I get it done here, don't even bother resisting, you know, in all their cases. And we felt that same way. We're like, you can't do this in Queens. It was the most like genuine thing I've seen. One thing that sticks with me is what people brought to the protests. And they brought anything that they could write on. And sometimes it was comically New York. Like it was a pizza box, you know, with, uh, with Hebrew on it and Spanish on it and all of these things. One uh, woman didn't have a marker. So she used her keys while she's sitting on the, on the train to cut out the letters from a box just to, hand, just to say what she needs to say. That energy, uh, it, it was amazing. And it started a national like, uh, airport movement. Like Every airport started doing it. We started getting texts. Our lawyers in JFK started getting texts and, and started giving assistance to other lawyers now camping out in all the other airports. And we were fighting for... Like in our case, there was a Persian grandma who needed her diabetes medicine and was locked in a room without it. So yeah, it was pretty visceral. And to me, uh, to me, all of this is like exercise um, because there is a certain point, there's a certain limit where we actually felt in that in that crowd like we could, at some point, there's a tipping point where we could just walk into the airport. And we could take them out of their, of those rooms if we wanted. Like there was that sense in the, in the air of correcting something with people power versus relying on institutions that we felt were failing us. And fortunately that night, the courts did serve us that night and they did stay on the, on the order. But I'm not sure what would have happened if, if they didn't. Yeah, there was actually one moment where I had kind of gotten in front of a crowd at some point, and then like somehow all of a sudden I was like inside of the <laughs> of the doorway, and then I was inside of the airport, and then like people were kind of like starting to come in, and then they like shut it down and like kind of like pushed me out of there too. But I was like, yeah, this is kind of I don't know the the energy was more intense than yeah most any protest I'd yeah. seen. I mean, I feel like I. It was a completely different energy, but soon after that was the bodega strike, like I think like a week later. Yeah. Um, and I was like, whoa, New York is getting like uh, really intense right now. Because these just, things like, stick around. Like the airport thing started the airport movement, which are still lawyers and teams now that are working today. The bodega strikers are now a movement too, and they do stuff together. A lot of them are from Yemen. A lot of them are talking about the drone strikes, a lot of that kind of work. The, the warfare, the asymmetrical warfare we're doing there. Like, every time they just create these bonds between people, they, they, they sustain, they, they, they stay around. Can you tell me about uh, when you put the Jim Acosta White House video <laughs> up against the potentially doctored yeah. White House video? Hundreds of miles away, though. They're hundreds and hundreds of you miles away. That, that's I not an invasion. Should, honestly, uh, I, well, that's I enough. I was going to ask one of the, the other folks. That's had, enough. Pardon me, ma'am. I'm, I'm, Excuse President, me. That's enough. Ms. President, I had one of the questions. So a few folks on Twitter started talking about 
I don't know. There's something off about this video. It seems some people were saying slow down. Some people were saying it was sped up, blah, blah, blah. So I just grabbed the video and overlaid it with the original. That's one of the, the other folks. That's had, enough. Pardon me, ma'am. I'm, I'm Miss Hesnick's one of the, the other folks. That's had, enough. Pardon me, ma'am. I'm, I'm Miss Hesnick's one of the, the other folks. That's had, enough. So the White House posted a video to try to incriminate Acosta, to, to make it look like he aggressively hit an intern denying her the microphone. And I think that video was first coming from InfoWars or yeah. something, where so, they grabbed yeah. it from. So they, so they used, they, the press secretary posted this as an official like video from the White House, and it was found to be not only doctored, so I did the process where I showed it was doctored, where it sped up just at the moment where it would look like he's like chopping her arm. Parts one of the, the other folks. That's had, enough. Parts one of the, the other folks. That's had, enough. That's one of the, the other folks. That's had, enough. Not only that, but it was also originated with Infowars, which is this white national, white supremacist, like, you know, tinfoil hat thing as well. And um, so like my question still today is, did they go and download it from him? and then re-upload it to, like, wash their hands of him? Or did he send it to them? Like, is there a direct line of communication? And I think one day there'll be, like, a, f a Freedom of Information request, and we'll figure that out. But right now we don't know. Uh, yeah. We do know CNN took that video, including mine, in that court case, and they got Ocosta back, back in the press room. What do you hope that your activism work accomplishes in the long run? Huh. In the long run... I guess like one thing I like to do is talk about how it was done, like openly. And I know that also enables like right-wingers to, to copy and do that, but they're just not artists <laughs> like for the most part. And they're just so shitty at it. And very few of them are able, able to kind of make that bridge because they truly almost all do not believe what they're doing. Um, so I feel like giving it, like sharing it immediately, like showing like how, how we did it, how anyone can do it, exercises a certain muscle in society where if you visualize something, it's more likely to occur. There's a word for it. There's like the idea that the Whitney belongs to us or the Metropolitan Museum of Art belongs to us or any institution belongs to us is both radical as it's not. You know, if you tell it to a child, they will be like, that seems normal. But if you tell it to an adult, there's too much unlearning to, that needs to be done to understand that. And I think art is a way to short circuit that and rather than like peel those levels of like layers of onions away with conversations and statistics and lobbying and persuasion and art is a way to just like chop it chop it in half sometimes yeah